0: Log Talk Radio.
1: Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikwe. Welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. Today is New Year's Day, uh, January 1st, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in Uh, once again to yet another edition uh, of our program, another year of uh, programming here at the Pan-African Journal, the special worldwide radio broadcast. Later on, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire reports. Uh, We'll have dispatches on the inauguration of the Brazilian President Lula da Silva uh, amid plans for the funeral of soccer legend Pele. Togolese traders are welcoming the reopening of the People's Republic of China. We'll have details on that as well. The Ivorian Arbor- Coast uh, government pledges uh, to return soldiers recently convicted in neighboring Mali. And nine people were killed in a stampede in the East African state of Uganda during a New Year's celebration. In the second hour, we continue our review of the 55th anniversary of the Massey lectures delivered by uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. over the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in late 1967. Today represents the 160th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863 during uh, the U.S. Civil War. We hear also a lecture on the uh, significance of the act uh, by the then uh, President Abraham Lincoln, the impact of the Emancipation Proclamation on the outcome of the Civil War. Finally, we look back on the 64th anniversary of the Cuban Revolution, which took place on this day, uh, January 1st of 1959. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. uh, We'll take our musical interlude uh, with the Bozi Boziana and Anti-Shock. Let's listen in. Let's
2: listen in. I'm some we stay pelisa kan, but I'm going to Biba, yolo bobo no jiuwa diyo. Ani tanga, bibo kolo, yole kibango. Yosali kolo chuo. Chua. Bayan kiba tekini, papa yawara. wara. Kala bayan kiba tukuma ba mama tawisa predita wisa nabinu Thank <laughs> C'est pas si nazi maëlée, c'est pas maëlée, c'est pas maëlée, c'est pas maëlée, c'est pas maëlée, I'm <muchos> be
1: Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast, and uh, we're here on New Year's Day, uh, 2023, uh, broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again uh, to another edition, uh, this New Year edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal, special uh, Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast. That was the music of the Bozy, uh Bozyana band, uh, the anti-shock uh, from the Democratic Republic of Congo. And uh, right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And, uh, of course, this month uh, represents the 25th anniversary of uh, the Pan-African Newswire in January of uh, 1998. And our lead story uh, in uh, this edition of the Pan-African Newswire involves the current political situation in the South American state of Brazil. Brazil's Luiz Ignacio Lula da Silva was sworn in as president earlier today. Uh, And his first address expressed optimism about plans to rebuild while pledging that members of outgoing Jair Bolsonaro's administration will be held to account. Lula is assuming office for the third time after thwarting far-right incumbent Bolsonaro's reelection bid. His return to power marks the culmination of a political comeback that is thrilling supporters and enraging opponents uh, in a fiercely polarized nation. Our message to Brazil is one of hope and reconstruction, Lula said in a speech in Congress in the lower house after signing the document that formally instates him as the the great edifice of rights, sovereignty, and development that this nation built has been systematically demolished in recent years. Uh, To erect this edifice, we are going to direct all our efforts, uh, according to the new president, Sunday afternoon in Brasilia's uh, main Esplanade, the party was on. Tens of thousands of supporters decked out in red, and Lula's Workers' Party cheered him after he was sworn in as head of state. They celebrated uh, when the president said he would send a report about the prior administration to all lawmakers and judicial authorities to revoke Bolsonaro's criminal decrees that loosened uh, gun control and Hold the prior administration responsible for its denialism in the face of the COVID-19 pandemic. We do not carry any spirit of revenge against those who sought to subjugate the nation to their personal and ideological designs, uh, but we are going to ensure the rule of law," uh, Lula said, without mentioning Bolsonaro by name. Those who erred uh, will answer for their errors with broad rights to their defense within the due legal. Lula's presidency is unlikely to be like his previous two uh, mandates, coming after the tightest presidential race in more than three decades in Brazil, and resistance to his taking office by some of his opponents, according to uh, some political analysts. And also in Brazil, preparations for the funeral ceremony of football legend Pelé are underway inside the country. Dignitaries and fans will gather at the Villa del Miro Stadium in Santos to pay last respects to the king of football. A tent where Pele's remains will be placed has been erected in the center of the pitch at the Villa's De Miro Stadium. Big crowds are expected to converge in the city and surrounding areas that is home to almost 2 million people for what is expected to be a deeply emotional ceremony. The Brazilian uh, Football Federation, the CBVF, has erected a huge poster of Pele outside its headquarters with the message eternal, uh, Portuguese for eternal, written above it. Pele, the Brazilian king of soccer who won a record three World Cups and became one of the most commanding sports figures of the last century, died in Sao Paulo Hospital uh, on Thursday, uh, December the 29th, after battling colon cancer. He was uh, 82 uh, years old. In West Africa, uh, in Togo, news of China reopening its borders to the world has uh, been welcomed by local traders. Uh, China will scrap its COVID quarantine for overseas arrival measure starting on January the 8th, just a week from today, after three years of tight restrictions. In this market, the largest in the country in Togo, two-thirds of products come from the People's Republic of China. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. Also in West Africa, in Cote d'Ivoire, uh, the 46 Ivorian soldiers detained in Mali for nearly six months and who have been just sentenced to 20 years in prison in Bamako will soon return to Ivorian soil, Ivorian President Alassane Wattar assured on yesterday uh, my thoughts are particularly with our soldiers detained in Mali since July the 10th, uh, which Har said in his end-of-year speech broadcast on the national television of uh, the Ivory Coast, thanks to diplomatic actions undertaken with the support of leaders of several friendly countries, including the president of the Togolese Republic, Faure Nasebe, three female soldiers were released last September, he recalled adding 46 other soldiers will soon return to Ivorian soil. The 46 Ivorian soldiers suspected of being mercenaries held in Mali since July were sentenced on Friday to 20 years in prison before the expiry of the ultimatum set by the West African heads of state to the Malian junta to release them. Uh, they were found guilty of attacking and plotting against the government undermining the external security of the state possession carrying and transporting weapons and munitions of war with the aim of disturbing public order or intimidation or terror at the end of the two-day trial in bamako the three female soldiers released in mid-september were sentenced to death in absentia the ivory head of state did not mention either this these heavy sentences or his ultimatum in his speech And uh, finally, a stampede uh, during New Year's celebrations at a popular mall in Uganda's capital of Kampala uh, left at least nine people dead, including children. Uh, This was according to the police earlier today. The stampede happened at the Freedom City Mall in Namasuba suburb as revelers rushed to watch fireworks. The Kampala Metropolitan Deputy Police Spokesperson, Luca Owuyas Senyedi, said the incident appeared to have occurred at midnight when an events MC encouraged attendees to go outside and watch a fireworks display. The pathway, territorial police are investigating an incident of rash behavior and neglect according to an official statement. No arrests have been made so far. Police said five people died at the scene and four others died of their injuries at the hospital when they had been taken for treatment. There was no immediate information on other injured people. Uh, The police said the bodies had been taken to the city mortuary in Malaga. The shopping mall is a popular venue for music concerts and New Year's celebrations. With that, we're going to conclude our Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of the program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, some 25 years ago, and has published since then tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire uh, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like uh, to have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for New Year's Day uh, 2023. Just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan-African Journal, blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. And, of course, we'll pay tribute uh, to Anita Pointer, uh, of the porter sisters who made her transition uh just um, uh, earlier today and uh we'll listen to uh the music of uh the porter sisters. Sisters uh, Anita uh, Pointer, uh, who uh, made her transition on uh, yesterday, and of course uh, the Pointer sisters were a phenomenon uh, in the 1970s, 1980s in uh, the music and cultural scene. Anita Marie Pointer uh, was born on January the 23rd of 1948. Uh, She Joined the Ancestors on December 31st uh, 2022. She was an African-American singer, a songwriter, best known as a founding member of the group the Pointer Sisters. Pointer was born in Oakland, California on January 23rd of 1948. She was the fourth of six children to Sarah Elizabeth Nee uh from and Reverend Elton Pointer, uh, though she was born in California, Pointer's parents were natives of Arkansas. As a result, her family traveled by car almost yearly from California to Arkansas to visit Pointer's grandparents who lived in Prescott. Uh, during that time, her mother allowed her to stay with her grandparents to attend 5th grade at McCrae Elementary, 7th grade at McCray Junior High, and 10th grade at McCray High School. While in Prescott, she played alto sax as a member of the McCrae High School Band. In 1969, Pointer quit her job as a secretary to join her younger sisters, Bonnie and June, to form the Pointer Sisters. And, of course, uh, the Pointer Sisters found fame um, nationally uh, in 1973. Uh, and uh, when they had the tune Yes, We Can Can that was led by Anita. It uh, reached number 11 on the Billboard Hot 100 charts. In 1974, Pointer writing talents helped the group make music history when Fairytale became a hit on the country music charts and enabled the Pointer sisters to become the first black female group to perform at the Grand Ole Opry. Fairytale won the group its first Grammy Award for Best Country Performance by Duo or Group and a Grammy nomination for the Best country song of the year in 1975. In the late 1970s and early 80s, the Pointer Sisters rose to higher levels of success with Fire. that was released in 1978, uh, He's So Shy. Released in 1980, Slow Hand in 1981, and I'm So Excited in 1982. In 1983, the trio's album Breakout reached multi-platinum status and won the group two more Grammy Awards, and of course, um, the Porter sisters, Anita Porter, and uh, we will uh, continue uh, in the days and weeks to come over the Pan-African Newswire uh, to, of course, uh, deal uh, with uh, this loss. And um, yes, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal on this special uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And um, we're going to continue with our focus on the Massey Lectures uh, by uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., the 55th anniversary just last month of the delivering of the uh, Massey Lectures. This is the installment number four. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. delivered these lectures over the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation In December of 1967, uh, they had a tremendous impact in Canada as well as internationally. Uh, These lectures were delivered uh, just uh, four months prior uh, to his assassination in Memphis, Tennessee, on April 4th of 1968. And uh, for those here in the Detroit metropolitan area, also southern Ontario, uh, northern Ohio, etc., throughout the entire state of Michigan, uh, the Detroit MLK Committee will be hosting its 20th annual Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Rally in March uh, on Monday, January 16th, the federally recognized holiday in honor of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The event will start at noon at the St. Matthew St. Joseph Episcopal Church uh, located at 8850 Woodward Avenue uh, in the north end. Uh, section of the city of Detroit, and I will feature uh, many of the social movements and cultural workers prominent in the ongoing struggle for civil rights, human rights, self-determination, internationalism, and peace uh, in Detroit and throughout the entire globe. Let's go to uh, installment number four of the Massey Lectures from 1967, featuring Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr.,
3: the Best of Ideas presents The mass Lectures by Dr. Martin Luther King. Over the past ten years, Dr. King, a Nobel Peace Prize winner, has been increasingly concerned with developing nonviolent mass tactics for bringing about revolutionary social change. The riots and other events of this past violent year in the United States and around the world have challenged Dr. King's approach more harshly than ever before. Part of Dr. King's recent response has been to plan an unprecedented camp-in in Washington for the spring of 1968, and beyond that, to be more urgently concerned with thinking out nonviolent strategies for facing international social problems. In tonight's talk, recorded two days ago in New York, Dr. King places in this current practical context his theoretical reflections on nonviolence and social change.
4: There is nothing wrong with the traffic law which says you have to stop for a red light. But when a fire is raging, the fire truck goes right through that red light, and normal traffic had better get out of its way. Or when a man is bleeding to death, the ambulance goes through those red lights at top speed." That is a fire raging now for the Negroes and the poor of this society. They are living in tragic conditions because of the terrible economic injustices that keep them locked in as an underclass, as the sociologists are now calling it. Disinherited people all over the world are bleeding to death from deep social and economic wounds. They need brigades of ambulance drivers who will have to ignore the red lights of the present system until the emergency is solved. Massive civil disobedience is a strategy for social change which is at least as forceful as an ambulance with its siren on full. In the past ten years, nonviolent civil disobedience has made a great deal of history, especially in the southern United States. When we and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference went to Birmingham, Alabama in 1963, we had decided to take action on the matter of integrated public accommodations. We went knowing that the Civil Rights Commission had written powerful documents calling for change, calling for the very rights we were demanding. But nobody did anything about the Commission's report. Nothing was done until we acted on these very issues and demonstrated before the court of world opinion the urgent need for change. It was the same story with voting rights. The Civil Rights Commission three years before we went to Selma, had recommended the changes we started marching for. But nothing was done until in 1965 we created a crisis a nation couldn't ignore. Without violence, we totally disrupted the system, the lifestyle of Birmingham and then of Selma, with their unjust and unconstitutional laws. Our Birmingham struggle came to its dramatic climax when some 3,500 demonstrators virtually filled every jail in that city and surrounding communities, and some 4,000 more continued to march and demonstrate nonviolently. The city knew then in terms that were crystal clear that Birmingham could no longer continue to function until the demands of the Negro community were met. The same kind of dramatic crisis was created in Selma two years later. The result on the national scene was the Civil Rights Bill and then the Voting Rights Act as President and Congress responded to the drama and the creative tension generated by the carefully planned demonstrations. Of course, by now it's obvious that new laws are not enough. The emergency we now face is economic, and it is a desperate and worsening situation For the 35 million poor people in America, not even to mention just yet the poor in the other nations, that is a kind of strangulation in the air. In our society, it's murder psychologically to deprive a man of a job or an income. You are in substance saying to that man that he has no right to exist. You are in a real way depriving him of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, denying, in his case, the very creed of his society. Now millions of people are being strangled that way. The problem is at least national. In fact, it's international in scope. And it is getting worse as the gap between the poor and the affluent society increases. The question that now divides the people who want radically to change that situation is, can the program of nonviolence, even if it envisions massive civil disobedience, realistically expect to meet such an enormous entrenched evil? First of all... Will nonviolence work psychologically after the summer of 1967? Many people feel that nonviolence, as a strategy for social change, was cremated in the flames of the urban riots of the last two years. They tell us that Negroes have only now begun to find their true manhood in violence; that the riots prove not only that Negroes hate whites but that compulsively they must destroy them. This bloodlust interpretation ignores one of the most striking features of the city riots. Violent they certainly were, but the violence to a startling degree was focused against property rather than against people. There were very few cases of injury to persons, and the vast majority of the rioters were not involved at all in attacking people. The much publicized death toll that marked the riots and the many injuries were overwhelmingly inflicted on the rioters by the military. It is clear that the riots were exacerbated by police action that was designed to injure or even to kill people. As for the snipers, no accounts of the riots claim that more than one or two dozen people were involved in sniping. From the facts, an unmistakable pattern emerges. A handful of Negroes, used gunfire substantially to intimidate, not to kill, and all of the other participants had a different target, property. I am aware that there are many who wince at a distinction between property and persons, who hold both sacrosanct. My views are not so rigid. A life is sacred. Property is intended to serve life, and no matter how much we surround it with rights and respect, it has no personal being. It is part of the earth man walks on. It is not man. The focus on property in the 1967 riots is not accidental. It is saying something. If hostility to whites is ever going to dominate a Negro's attitude and reach murderous proportions, surely it would be during a riot. But this rare opportunity for bloodletting was sublimated into arson or turned into a kind of stormy carnival of free merchandise distribution. Why did the rioters avoid personal attacks? The explanation can't be fear of retribution, because the physical risk incurred in the attacks on property were no less than for personal assaults. The military forces were treating acts of petty larceny as equal to murder. Far more rioters took chances with their own lives in their attacks on property than threaten the life of anyone else. Why were they so violent with property then? Because property represents a white power structure, which they were attacking and trying to destroy. A curious proof of the symbolic aspect of the looting for some who took part in it is the fact that after the riots police received hundreds of calls from Negroes trying to return merchandise they had taken. Those people wanted the experience of taking, of redressing the power imbalance that property represents. Possession afterwards was secondary. A deeper level of hostility came out in arson, which was far more dangerous than the lutein. But it, too, was a demonstration and a warning. It was directed against symbols of exploitation, and it was designed to express the depth of anger in the community. What does this restraint in the summer riots mean for our future strategy? If one can find a court of nonviolence toward persons even during the riots when emotions were exploding, it means that nonviolence should not be written off for the future as a force in Negro life. Many people believe that the urban Negro is too angry and too sophisticated to be nonviolent. Those same people dismiss the nonviolent marches in the South and tried to describe them as processions of pious elderly ladies. The fact is that in all the marches we have organized, some men of very violent tendencies have been involved. It was routine for us to collect hundreds of knives from our own ranks before the demonstrations in case of momentary weakness. And in Chicago last year we saw some of the most violent individuals accepting nonviolent discipline. Day after day during those Chicago marches, I walked in our lines and I never saw anyone retaliate with violence. There were lots of provocations, not only the screaming white hootnums lining the sidewalks, but also groups of Negro militants talking about guerrilla warfare we had some gang leaders and members marching with us. I remember walking with the Blackstone Rangers while bottles were flying from the sidelines, and I saw their noses being broken and blood flowing from their wounds, and I saw them continue and not retaliate, not one of them with violence. I am convinced that even very violent temperaments can be channeled through nonviolent discipline if the movement is moving, if they can act constructively and express through an effective channel their very legitimate anger. But even if nonviolence can be valid psychologically, for the protesters who want change, Is it going to be effective strategically against a government and a status quo that has so far resisted this summer's demands on the grounds that we must not reward rioters? Far from rewarding the rioters, far from even giving a hearing to their just and urgent demands, the administration has ignored its responsibility for the causes of the riots and instead has used the negative aspects of them to justify continued inaction on the underlying issues. The administration's only concrete response was to initiate a study and call for a day of prayer. As a minister... I take prayer too seriously to use it as an excuse for avoiding work and responsibility. When a government commands more wealth and power than has ever been known in the history of the world and offers no more than this, it is worse than blind. It is provocative. It is paradoxical but fair to say that Negro terrorism is incited less on ghetto street corners than in the halls of Congress. I intend to show that nonviolence will be effective, but not until it has achieved the massive dimensions, the disciplined planning, and the intense commitment of a sustained direct action movement of civil disobedience on the national scale. The dispossessed of this nation, the poor, both white and Negro, live in a cruelly unjust society. They must organize a revolution against that injustice, not against the life of the persons who are their fellow citizens, but against the structures through which the society is refusing to take means which have been called for and which are at hand to lift the load of poverty. The only real revolutionary, people say, is a man who has nothing to lose. There are millions of poor people in this country who have very little or even nothing to lose. They can be helped to take action together, They will do so with a freedom and a power that will be a new and unsettling force in our complacent national life. Beginning with the new year, we will be recruiting 3,000 of the poorest citizens from 10 different urban and rural areas to initiate and lead a sustained, massive direct action movement in Washington. Those who choose to join this initial 3,000, this nonviolent army, this Freedom Church of the Poor, will work with us for three months to develop nonviolent action skills. Then we will move on Washington, determined to stay there until the legislative and executive branches of the government are taking serious and adequate action on jobs and income. A delegation of poor people can walk into a hired official's office with a carefully, collectively prepared list of demands. If you are poor, if you are unemployed anyway, you can choose to stay in Washington for as long as the struggle needs you. And if that official says, but Congress would have to approve this, Ah, but the President would have to be consulted on that. You can say, all right, we'll wait. And you can settle down in his office for as long a stay as necessary. If you are, let's say, from rural Mississippi and have never had medical attention and your children are undernourished and unhealthy, you can take those little children into the Washington hospitals and stay with them there until the medical workers cope with their needs. And in showing your children, you will have shown this country a sight that will make it stop in its busy tracks and think hard about what it has done. The many people who will come and join this 3,000 from all groups in the country's life will play a supportive role deciding to be poor for a time along with the dispossessed who are asking for their right to jobs or income. Jobs, income, the demolition of slums and the rebuilding by the people who live in it of new communities in their place. In fact, a new economic deal for the poor camp in Washington to demand these things. Because only the federal Congress and administration can decide to use the billions of dollars we need for the real war on poverty. We need not a new law, but a massive new national program. This Congress has done nothing to help such measures and plenty to hinder them. Why should Congress care about our dying cities? It is still dominated by senior representatives of the rural South who still unite in an obstructive coalition with unprogressive Northerners to prevent public funds from going where they are socially needed. We broke that coalition in 1963 and 1964, when the civil rights and voters' rights laws were passed. We need to break it again by the size and force of our movement. And the best place to do that is before the eyes and inside the buildings of these same congressmen. The people of this country if not the congressmen, are ready for a serious economic attack on slums and unemployment, as two recent polls by Lou Harris have revealed. So we have to make Congress ready to act on the plight of the poor. We will prod and sensitize the legislators, the administrators, and all the wielders of power until they have faced this utterly imperative need. I have said that the problem, the crisis we face, is at least national in scope. In fact, it is inseparable from an international emergency which involves the poor, the dispossessed, and the exploited of the whole world. Can a nonviolent direct action movement find application on the international level to confront economic and political problems? I believe it can. It is clear to me that the next stage of the movement is to become international. National movements within the developed countries, forces that focus on London, or Paris, or Washington, or Ottawa, must help to make it politically feasible for their governments to undertake the kind of massive aid that the developing countries need if they are to break the chains of poverty. As Barbara Ward pointed out when she was giving these massive lectures a few years ago, three percent of the gross national product of the industrialized nations should be flowing through international agencies into aid for the poor countries of the world. It will be tragic indeed for our nations to come before the judgment of God and try to defend the miserly one-tenth percent of our gross national product, which now goes into feeding the hungry, clothing the naked and caring for those imprisoned by fear and illiteracy. We in the West must bear in mind that the poor countries are poor primarily because we'd exploited them through political or economic colonialism. Americans in particular must help their nation repent of her modern economic imperialism. But movements in our countries alone will not be enough. In Latin America, for example, national reform movements have almost despaired of nonviolent methods. Many young men, even many priests, have joined guerrilla movements in the hills. So many of Latin America's problems have roots in the United States of America that we need to form a solid, united movement, nonviolently conceived and carried through, so that pressure could be brought to bear on capital and government power structures concerned from both sides of the problem at once. I think that may be the only hope for the nonviolent solution in Latin America today. And one of the most powerful expressions of nonviolence may come out of that international coalition of socially aware forces operating outside governmental frameworks. Even entrenched problems like the South African government and its racial policies could be tackled on this level. If just two countries, Britain and the United States, could be persuaded to end all economic interaction with the South African regime, they could bring that government to its knees in a relatively short time. Theoretically, the British or the American government could make that kind of decision. Almost every corporation in both countries has economic ties with its government, which it could not afford to do without. In practice, such a decision would represent such a major reordering of priorities that we should not expect that any movement could bring it about in one year or two. Indeed, although it is obvious that nonviolent movements for social change must internationalize, because of the interlocking nature of the problems they all face, and because otherwise those problems will breed war, we have hardly begun to build the skills and the strategy or even the commitment to planetize our movement for social justice. In the world facing the revolt of ragged and hungry masses of God's children, in the world torn between the tensions of East and West, white and colored, individualists and collectivists, in the world whose cultural and spiritual power lags so far behind her technological capabilities that we live each day on the verge of nuclear co-annihilation. In this world, nonviolence is no longer an option for intellectual analysis. It is an imperative for action.
3: Dr. Martin Luther King, the CBC's Massey lecturer for 1967, with his fourth talk, Nonviolence and Social Change. It was produced by Jeff Somerville, and Del McKenzie. The fifth and final Massey Lecture will not be heard next Monday, but next Sunday, that's Christmas Eve, December the 24th, at 10.30 p.m. on this network. It will be not a lecture, but a sermon, preached in Dr. King's own church, Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia, as a Christmas sermon to his own congregation on nonviolence, conscience, and peace. That's Sunday, December the 24th at 10.30 p.m. The 1967 Massey Lectures will be available in book form early in 1968. To reserve your copy, write to CBC Publications, Post Office Box 500, Terminal A, Toronto. And that's the best of ideas for tonight. Ken Haslam speaking. Good night.
1: Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, the installment four of the historic uh, Massey Lectures delivered by Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. in uh, late 1967 over the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. And um, as I mentioned before, coming up on January the 16th uh, at noon in the city of Detroit, the 20th annual Martin Luther King Day Rally in March will be held at Historic St. Matthews, St. Joseph's Church, located at 8850 Woodward Avenue in the north end section of Detroit. And uh, we want to encourage everybody in the city of Detroit, the metropolitan area, southern Ontario, northeastern Ohio, throughout the state of Michigan to attend and support uh, this event. And uh, we'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan African Journal for this week. Welcome back. And uh, that was, of course, the Pointer Sisters' uh, Jump to My Love, another major contribution uh, of this group uh, to uh, the music scene in the United States and indeed around the world. And of course, we're paying tribute to Anita Pointer, who made her transition uh, just recently. And uh, this is the Pan African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast, New Year's Day broadcast uh, for 2023 we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown detroit right now we want to look back on the 160th anniversary of emancipation day the issuing and the effectiveness uh, in force of the emancipation proclamation that was issued uh in fact uh, drafted in september of 1862 going into effect in january the 1st of eighteen eighty three, commemorated by the african people of the united states as emancipation day let's listen to some of this history surrounding uh the development of the u.s civil war uh the struggle against the african enslavement and uh, the emancipation of the enslaved africans you're listening to the Pan african journal special worldwide radio broadcast
5: new year's day Episode uh, 4, The first formally recognized or organized black regiment in the Civil War was known as the First South Carolina Volunteers. It was organized entirely and exclusively among freed slaves along the Sea Islands of South Carolina. It had an amazing non-commissioned officer whose name was Prince Rivers A man who'd been a slave yesterday, but a free man by 1862, and, whom, and whose white commanding officer, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, said, in another land and another time, he could command any army in the world. Thomas Wentworth Higginson was an abolitionist from Worcester, Massachusetts, who ended up the colonel and the commander of that regiment. Nearly 1,000 freed slaves recruited among the roughly 35 to 40,000 former slaves along the Georgia and South Carolina Sea Islands. Higginson went on to write a great book about it called *Army Life in a Black Regiment*. And among the uh, remarkable descriptions he left in that classic is this description. From Thanksgiving Day, 1862, so it's November 62, the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation is in place, but the final Emancipation Proclamation hasn't quite happened yet. It was actually the first formally legally federally recognized Thanksgiving Day, so decreed by Abraham Lincoln. And Higginson had his headquarters in an old plantation house, he looked out of broken windows at this abandoned plantation in the Sea Islands through what he described as the great avenues of great live oaks, and he observed that, quote, all this is the universal southern panorama, but five minutes' walk beyond the hovels and the live oaks will bring one to something so unsouthern." that the whole southern coast at this moment trembles at the suggestion of such a thing, a camp of a regiment of freed slaves. Almost two years later, one of those freed slaves named George Hatton wrote a couple letters from the front. George Hatton was a former slave he had lived part of his life in Washington, D.C., part of his life in Virginia, North Carolina. He'd been around. He was at this point, by April of 1864, a non-commissioned sergeant in Company C 1st Regiment United States Colored Troops. They were encamped near New Bern, North Carolina. And he sat down to write a letter to reflect upon the circumstance that he found himself in. Hatton... His fellow soldiers and their families had lived generations as slaves. And this is what he wrote. He says, Though the government openly declared that it did not want the Negroes in this conflict, I look around me and see hundreds of colored men armed and ready to defend the government at any moment. And such are my feelings that I can only say... The fetters have fallen. Our bondage is over. A month later, Hatton's regiment was in camp near Jamestown, Virginia, and he didn't miss the irony of being at Jamestown, founding site of Virginia. And into his lines came several black freed women who all declared they had recently been severely whipped by a master members of Hatton's company managed to capture that slave owner, a Mr. Clayton, the man who had allegedly administered the beatings on these women. The white Virginian was stripped to the waist. He was tied to a tree. And he was given 20 lashes by one of his own former slaves, a man named William Harris, who was now a member of the Union Army. In turn, each of the women that Clayton had beaten were given the whip and their chance to lay the lash on the slaveholder's back. The women were given leave, said Sergeant Hatton, his words, to remind him that they were no longer his, but safely housed in Abraham's bosom and under the protection of the Star-Spangled Banner, and guarded by their own patriotic, though once downtrodden, race. In Hatton's letter, he once again felt lost for words to describe the transformation he was witnessing. Oh, that I had the tongue to express my feelings, he wrote, while standing on the banks of the James River on the soil of old Virginia, the mother state of slavery, as a witness of such a sudden reverse, the day is clear, the fields of grain are beautiful, and the birds are singing sweet melodious songs, while poor Mr. Clayton is crying to his servants for mercy. That's a revolution described in the words of a former slave, words that were trying to capture the transformations of history at the same time his actions were trying to transform history. Words. Now, we will forever debate in this society the meaning of the Emancipation Proclamation, Over and over and over again we debate, did it really free anybody? Why did it only free the slaves in the states in rebellion? Why was Lincoln so bloody legalistic in this document? Was Richard Hofstetter right when he said it had all the eloquence of a bill of lading? Which means a grocery list. Why was it written like it was a legal brief in court? Here and there laced with some remarkable phrases. Why was he so careful not to free the slaves in the border states that hadn't left the Union? And on and on. But I think we should make no mistake, the Emancipation Proclamation is a terribly important American document. Emancipation is not just the story of great documents, as I'm trying to argue, but this one's important. The second paragraph reads, And this is, by the way, Lincoln's own handwriting. This is a facsimile of the original. He wrote some three or four originals. That on the first day of January in this year of our Lord, 1,863 all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state, the people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the United States. God, is this legalistic? shall be then this is not legalistic then thenceforward and forever free and the executive government of this United States including the military and naval authorities thereof the army and navy are now bound to do this it says will recognize and maintain the freedom of such persons and will do no act or acts to repress such persons or any of them in any efforts they may make for their actual freedom. Actual freedom. Now, yeah, it was a limited document. It didn't free as many places as the Confiscation Act legally already set in motion. That's true. But this is the most important thing to remember about the Emancipation Proclamation. Most black folks didn't care about the details of it. What they cared about is the, that the United States government had acted and said they were going to be free. There were at least four immediate and visible effects of the proclamation once it went into effect on January 1st. Every forward step of the Union armies now would be, whether some of those officers liked it or not, a liberating step. Secondly, secondly, news of this proclamation whatever the details and the fine print would spread like wildflower uh, wildfire excuse me across the south and it would bring about there's no question it will bring about increased activity increased flight increased movement toward union lines by freed people where they can do it and there's all over all over the record we have testimony of confederate soldiers themselves, of Southerners, white Southerners themselves saying they first heard about the Emancipation Proclamation from their slaves. Third, it committed the United States government in the eyes of the world. And that's terribly important when we remember that Great Britain was on the verge of recognition of the Confederacy. More on that a bit later in the course, of how that foreign relationship and the problem of Civil War diplomacy is being managed by the two governments, Union and Confederate. And fourth, on the second page of the Emancipation Proclamation, or is it the third, and another very legalistic paragraph, Lincoln formally authorizes once and for all, although it's already begun to happen, the recruitment of black men into the Union armies and navy. And it authorizes a formal process now to recruit black men to the Union uniform. And before the war will end, about 10% of all Union forces will be African Americans, approximately 180,000, 80% of whom were former slaves from the slave states. Now, in that fall of 1862, Frederick Douglass put down his cudgel that he'd been beating Lincoln with for a year in his editorials, and he beat him bitterly at times. At one point in in late 61, he called Abraham Lincoln the most powerful slave catcher in the world. That was Douglass's opinion of that denial of asylum policy, which said fugitive slaves' escape union lines had to be returned if their owners were loyal Douglas, like many others, saw the nonsense in that policy early on. Douglas finally put down the cudgel, and he said, with lovely irony, "It is really wonderful," said Frederick Douglass, "how all efforts to evade, postpone, and prevent its coming have been mocked and defied by the stupendous sweep of events. Its coming, meaning black freedom." And I'd just say, lastly, to add a fifth to that, emancipation transformed the purpose of the war. Emancipation, more than anything else, will make the Civil War a war of conquest, a war of near totality on both sides. And it meant now, now that this was going to be a war of conquest on the South, social... And economic institutions, it meant it could probably only end in unconditional surrender. Now, it's a complicated story as to how this will be enforced, of course, and I strongly urge you to read certain of those Lincoln documents in the, <clears throat> in the Mike Johnson Reader, and more importantly to read at least that, that greatest hit selection I provided in the reading packet of the documents on emancipation which by the way come out of a book called free at last which is itself a five hundred page collection of the greatest hits of the documents of the american emancipation which are now published in five volumes all of which are in the library or in the national archives but one of those lincoln documents i don't want you to miss i said the other day was the james Conkling letter it comes in august of sixty three One of the reasons that letter is interesting is that it shows us that though Lincoln could be one crafty politician and whether emancipation will ever truly succeed in this war, of course, depends on the Union winning on the battlefield. It really depended on all those deaths at Gettysburg and at Vicksburg and so many other horrible places. And yes, it's true large, large numbers of those Union soldiers who died didn't necessarily believe they were fighting to free slaves, nor did they even want to, but sometimes history is ahead of anyone's basic human individual motives, isn't it? But in this Conkling letter, so-called, it's a public letter that Lincoln mastered this presidential art of the public letter more than any previous president, and it was, his version of the news conference, which didn't happen in those days. It was his version of an exclusive interview with Anderson Cooper or whatever the hell it would be today. Um, He wrote letters aimed at certain newspapers, which would then be reprinted across the country. This was a letter to James Conkling, a congressman from Illinois, of his own party, who was opposing emancipation, who was, who was at least wary of it and worried about it. The great worry about the emancipation pro- policy, of course, was that white northerners would not accept it. That white northern soldiers would throw it on their arms and say, I ain't fighting to free the slaves, I'm fighting to preserve the Union, thank you very much. Lincoln had that great fear himself. But God read that letter. It, it's one of Lincoln's it's Lincoln the ironist. It's also Lincoln the persuasive lawyer. In the second page of it, he says to Conkling, he's really saying this to white northerners now, just, because this letter got published everywhere. You dislike the Emancipation Proclamation, he says, and perhaps would have it retracted. You say it is unconstitutional. I think differently. I think the Constitution invests its commander-in-chief with the law of war in time of war. The most that can be said, if so much, is that the slaves are property. Is there, has there ever been any question that by law of war, property both of enemies and friends may be taken when needed? So there's that argument. Whatever you think of the morality of this, folks... Slaves are property of the enemy. I'm taking their assets. That's a legal argument. Then you go to the next page. He's also beginning to make there an argument. If you read that part of the letter carefully, it's an argument for total war, to unconditional surrender. And he's trying to condition public opinion for this. Then you go to the next page. You say you will not fight to free Negroes. Some of them seem willing to fight for you. But no matter. Fight you then exclusively to save the Union. I issued the proclamation on purpose to aid you in saving the Union. Whenever you shall have conquered all resistance to the Union, if I shall urge you to continue fighting, it will be an apt time then for you to declare you will not fight to free Negroes. All right. Crawl into your cul-de-sac and say you're only fighting to save the Union, but here's another way to save the Union. And then he goes on. I thought that in your struggle for the Union, to whatever extent the Negroes should cease helping the enemy, to that extent it weakened the enemy in his resistance to you. Do you think differently? I thought that whatever Negroes can be got to do as soldiers leaves just so much less for white soldiers to do in saving the Union. Almost as if he's appealing to Conkling's racial self-interest. Does it appear otherwise to you? And then Lincoln says, But Negroes, like other people, act upon motives. Why should they do anything for us? if we will do nothing for them. If they stake their lives for us, they must be prompted by the strongest motive, even the promise of freedom. And the promise being made must be kept. Okay. Blah, blah, blah. Lots of words, right? Words, 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 words. Yeah. Yeah. But meanings are almost always somewhere, somehow embedded in words. Now, as I said, now every forward step of the Union armies is going to be a liberating step, and I want to show a, just a quick map here to illustrate something. Um, I can zoom in on that. I hope you can see the colors here to some extent. The simple point of this map is this. It's a map that shows the conquest of the South by Union forces. It's the movement, generally speaking, of Union lines into the South in what becomes now, by 62, 63, and 64, a war of conquest west and east. But I want to especially stress that the most important factor in when and where a slave might attain his or her freedom, the first factor, had everything to do with where the armies went. It was proximity to the war that made emancipation possible in northern Virginia in 1862, Sea Islands of Georgia, South Carolina in 62, around the whole New Orleans region in 62, but not possible at all in southern Georgia until after the war was over. Not possible really at all in southern Alabama southern half of Alabama until the whole war was over. Not possible at all in parts of Mississippi until the whole war was over. Hence, that's why the large majority of American slaves were not actually within Union lines or technically free in any way until the war ended. I I make one other point about this. There's a a nice book by a historian named Stephen Ash. It's called When the Yankees Came, and it's, it's all about the, the process of union occupation of parts of the South. He goes in and studies towns in Tennessee and towns in northern Georgia and towns in northern Virginia and tries to understand, so what happened when an area of the South, an area of the Confederacy, came under union control? And he divides the South usefully here. And it's very useful in understanding how emancipation actually happened on the ground as a human, sometimes brutal, ugly, chaotic, painful process. He divides the South into what he calls one, uh, three regions. One, the Confederate frontier. The second he calls no man's land. And the third he calls garrisoned towns. Now that's pretty easy to understand. If you think of, uh, this, just take Tennessee up there in the middle. Nashville became, by 1862, Nashville became a garrison, it was the capital of Tennessee. It became a garrisoned Union town. That is, it's occupied. Its resources, its railroads, its, it's everything were taken over by the Union forces. And then there's the so-called no man's land. The region, say, between uh, Nashville and where the Confederate forces were. The land between the armies, which of course fluctuated a great deal back and forth. And then lastly, he calls it the Confederate frontier, or at times he'll call it the Confederate hinterland. That is the land behind the line that was never taken by Union forces. The land behind the lines where Confederate resources, relatively speaking, remained intact. They're still producing cotton crops in the summer of 64, in the fall of 64, and they're still planting in the whole southern half of Georgia and the whole southern half of Alabama, by and large, right on into 1865. But where you happen to be geographically, was the first important factor, where and how emancipation might occur in proximity particularly to the armies. Now, a second factor that would determine when and if slaves would be free was the character of the slave society in any given region. Were they in a densely populated slave region like the Sea Islands, parts of the Cotton Belt, or were they in sparsely... Populated areas, and it—I mean, again, it, it had to do with geography. Were you in the Lower Mississippi Valley? Huge concentrations of slaves. When Grant's forces moved down the Mississippi and eventually take Vicksburg by July 1863, this entire region, in fact, it is in the Lower Mississippi Valley. This is why some people argue that the war, the Civil War, was really won and lost in the West and I'll I'll engage that argument after the break when we talk about Union victory and Confederate defeat and the various debates among historians trying to explain this. A lot of people have argued that the war is won and lost in the West because of the the great significance of the Mississippi Valley, which had become the great cotton kingdom of the world. And when, when Union forces truly conquered the Mississippi River by the summer of 1863, there are thousands of slaves coming into Union lines. The reason that Grant and Sherman and other officers in the West began to create these things called contraband camps for freed slaves is because they didn't know what what to do with them. And there are these amazing dispatches written by Grant uh, to to the War Department saying, what am I going to do with all these people? How do I feed them? Where do I put them? What is their status? What are they legally? And eventually, that's why you get the largest contraband camps anywhere. The largest ones were not in Virginia, although there was a huge huge one around Washington, D.C. The largest of them were in northern Mississippi at a place called Corinth. You can see it on the map right here. There was a huge contraband camp at Memphis. There was eventually one in Cairo, Illinois. All up and down this region. This is where conquest really happened first and the, the true disruption of southern society and the beginnings of the destruction of plantations. It will lead even uh, to the beginnings. It's going to to take another year for it to happen along the East Coast, but it begins in 63, even in 62, but especially 63, where many plantation owners in Louisiana and Mississippi started refugeeing their slaves. They would flee their plantations in the face of the Yankee armies, often going west toward Texas, sometimes just further inland, or wherever they could go and they would try to take their slaves with them it was called refugeeing them and often what that I means I'll, I'll cite some examples of that after the break there's a famous diary memoir by a southern woman kate stone who kept a diary of her plantation called brokenburn at any rate uh, she left with some hundred and some slaves uh, to try to get out of Louisiana over into Texas, but by the time she got there, half of them were gone. And she kept wondering why. Gee, why would they leave? It happened to their loyalty. Then thirdly, uh, the third factor that would determine when and how and if a slave became free was indeed um, what Policy was actually being enforced at any given time by those Union troops, or for that matter, by the Confederate troops, in terms of freeing slaves or not freeing slaves, taking them into their lines or not taking them into their lines, and establishing some kind of legal status. And then the fourth factor, of course, and this one you can't measure. You can know it when you read it and you see it and you hear it. And there's so many wonderful documents that demonstrate it. The fourth factor in when and how American slaves became free was their own ingenuity, their own initiative, their own cunning, their own bravery, their own willingness to risk everything to try to get to something called freedom. And not knowing what that freedom would be when they got there. Would they be employed? Would they have shelter? Were they going to be able to feed their children? Could they get their wives and husbands out with them? What about women with three children? Where would they go? What would their status be? Would they actually have any rights? We learned so much about this, and please, in the the, uh, reading packet, have a close look. I I included uh, some of those... uh, uh, Documents from the contraband camps, where these superintendents of the uh, of the contraband camps were all asked a series of questions. They were asked things about the motives of the slaves that escaped into their camps. They were asked to describe why had these people come. They were asked to describe their physical conditions. They were asked to describe uh, what they thought, what they felt, what they said. And all these superintendents of all these contraband camps are just stunned at the at the way, that black folk keep coming in spite of the hardships, half-clothed, half-fed, if that. And they're stunned at the religiosity of escaped slaves. These superintendents write back and they say, these people sing and they worship all night long. Strange. But almost to a man, these superintendents of contraband camps, when asked what were the motives, they simply fall back on the most basic of things. They say things like, um, they wanted their freedom. Now, emancipation also would depend here and there on a whole lot of other factors, but again, they come under these categories I've already given you, A close proximity to the war. Now, for example, when the war moved into Georgia in 63 and 64 when Sherman invaded northern Georgia and the war really went to the deep hinterland the heart of the southeast Confederates were already and they were already doing this in Virginia they were, they were beginning to do it out in the west they surely did it in the, in the city of Mobile and other Confederate held cities Confederates had begun to employ or impress their slaves into service thousands of them About 3,000 slaves were put to work in Mobile, Alabama, building its fortifications. Slaves, hundreds upon hundreds of slaves, were put to work building the fortifications of Richmond. An estimated 5,000 slaves were put to work building the fortifications all around Atlanta by late 63 to try to stop Sherman's advance. Very often they were hired out that is, they were supposed to be paid, or their owners were supposed to be paid for their service. They were used as teamsters and nurses and cooks and boatmen and blacksmiths and laundresses and so on and so forth. If you saw a Confederate army in eight, from 1862 to 64, you'd see hundreds of black people. Well, and as those armies moved, sometimes those slaves had opportunities to flee. In the wake of battles, On any scale, some slaves would always flee. They were often um, used as the burial crews on both sides. They were also hired out, and this was really significant in Virginia, to the ironworks in Richmond. The Tredegar Ironworks at one point employed almost 4,000 slaves who tended to be hired out from the western parts of Massachusetts and the northern parts of North Carolina. That movement of people, on this sca- movement of slaves, on this scale had never happened in the South. And in the midst of that movement, Linda Morgan wrote a fine book on emancipation in Virginia, and he, she showed this for the first time, that all this movement of, of hired-out slaves to Richmond and other small ironworks, by the way, over in the Shenandoah Valley, meant a certain percentage of them began to flee and escape further north. They worked on railroad crews. Uh, It was estimated that in in northern Georgia, during Sherman's campaign against Atlanta, that about 40% of all the women working as nurses in Confederate hospitals all over the state were slave women. It means they've been taken off their plantations, their farms, or out of their domestic situations, wherever they were, and put to work in the hospitals. So, the point is, movement of the armies meant movement of slaves as well. And that moment of freedom, that moment of escape, that opportunity might come when you would least expect it. And that, that American slave had to make a choice every time do I go and risk everything, or do I not? Let me tell you one little story amidst that. It's the other half of this book I just did. It's a young slave named Wallace Turnage. He was born in a little to- on a little tobacco farm in North Carolina in 1846, Greene County, North Carolina, <coughs> sold by his indebted owner to a Richmond, Virginia slave trader named Hector Davis, who was one of the largest slave traders in the United States and kept enormous records. Spent about six months in 1860 working in the, slave, the three-story slave jail auction house in Richmond. His job every day was preparing the slaves in what was called the dressing room to take them out to the auction floor. And one day he simply told, boy, you're in the auction. And he was sold to an Alabama cotton platter, planter named James Chalmers. 72 hours later by train, he found himself on a huge cotton operation near Pickensville, Alabama, which is uh, right about there, right on the Mississippi border. Plantation with about 85 slaves. And the narrative he left us, which was discovered and lopped into my lap a few years ago, the extraordinary narrative he left is the story largely of his five attempts to escape in the midst of the war, from the age of 14 to 17. He was one passionate, half-crazy, one might say, no doubt traumatized teenage slave who just couldn't be controlled. He ran away four times into Mississippi, the second two of which, certainly at least, He was always trying to get up to northern Mississippi to get to the Union Armies, which he knew had controlled the whole northern tier of Mississippi by late spring, 1862. In fact, three of his escapes over there were really... He would always go up the Mobile and Ohio Railway line. At one time he was at large for four and a half months, hiding in other slave cabins and hiding in woods and forests and gullies and wherever he could hide, and he was always captured. He was trying to actually get to Corinth and the big contraband camp in Corinth, and he almost made it on his fourth try. He kept being captured by slave patrols, Confederate patrols, and so on. His master would always come after him because he was so valuable. He'd been sold, by the way, for $950 the first time out of North Carolina. He was sold for $1,000 to old Chalmers in Richmond, and Chalmers now got fed up in early sixty-three of constantly trying to retrieve this kid and he took him down to Mobile, Alabama and sold him at the slave jail in Mobile in the spring of 1863 for $2,000. That's about the price today of a good Mercedes-Benz. Well, as opposed to a bad Mercedes-Benz, I'm not sure what that would be. Uh, And Wallace's fifth and final escape attempt, the one that succeeded came after a vicious beating. He'd been beaten many more times than he could count. He'd been put in neck braces and leg chains and ankle chains and wrist chains and every kind of... He'd experienced about every kind of brutality slavery could wreck upon a teenage kid. One day he crashed his master's carriage, and the master got so angry that he took him to the slave jail, hired the jailer to give him 30 lashes with the ugliest whip they had, contraption they had that would make you bleed on every lash. At the end of it, he's standing there naked, bleeding. His master says, go home. Instead of going home, he put his clothes back on and he walked right through the Confederate Army, a garrison of 10,000 troops, where he was no doubt simply mistaken for yet another black camp hand. And at dusk, he just crossed through the Confederate camp and he walked out of Mobile. And his final escape is a three-week trek, which he narrates uh, uh, in in remarkable ways. A three-week trek down the western shore of Mobile Bay for 25 miles through a snake and alligator-infested swamp, now known as the Fowl River Estuary. I've been there. I've seen the alligators and the snakes from a large ferry boat. And he describes one day praying especially hard when he got out to the tip of Mobile Bay and the tide brought in an old rickety rowboat. He tipped over the rowboat, took a plank of wood, and he just started rowing out into the ocean. And in quite dramatic form, which is no doubt a little embellished, he describes how a wave is about to swamp his little boat and he hears oars. And the oars were a Union gunboat with eight sailors, They said jump in, he jumped in, and he said as he sat down in their boat, he said the Yankee sailors were struck with silence as they looked at him. And I don't know if that's true or not, but I don't doubt it. They probably were struck with silence, wondering who he was and how he got there. They took him to a sand island fort and clothed him and fed him the first kind act by a white person the 17-year-old turnage had ever experienced. And the next day they took him to Fort Gaines on Dauphin Island, which is the big, beautiful sandbar island out at the mouth of Mobile Bay. And he was brought before the Union commander of all forces in in the area, uh, Gordon Granger, who interrogated him, probably because they wanted intelligence about Mobile. And Granger gave him two choices. He could either join the black regiment that they were forming at that very time in the Gulf region. Or he could become a servant to a white officer. And Wallace chose the latter. Didn't tell us why, but probably because he'd had enough suffering. He'd seen enough of uh, his own war with the Confederates. And he served out the war for another year as the mess cook for a captain from a Maryland regiment whose name was Junius Turner. And Wallace was with that regiment in Baltimore, Maryland in August of 1865 when it was mustered out. He lived three years in Baltimore and then moved to New York City where he lived the rest of his life until 1916. But by 1870, I found him in a census manuscript living on the 300 block of Thompson Street in what you and I call Greenwich Village. He got his mother, his four siblings, somehow out of North Carolina, and they were all living in a tenement house, surviving as part of the first generation of a black working class, former slaves, in a northern city. He lived till 1916. He's buried in Cypress Hill Cemetery in Brooklyn, New York. The point of all of that is that these slaves escaping were real people with real names, real families, real hopes and desires. And those who survived, some of those who survived, told us what it meant. Now, um, the war, of course, raged on. And at the end of the day, this is a photograph, by the way, taken in 1862, I believe, um, in Virginia. The photographer simply called it a group of contrabands. The war raged on, and of course, in the spring of 1863, The Union armies will invade Virginia again. I'm going to come back to lots of this after the break when we get back to the military history and try to explain how the Union side won this war. They'll fight a horrible battle at a place called Chancellorsville near Fredericksburg in May of 1863, which will be another smashing victory by Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson over a Union army commanded by Joseph Hooker. It will give Lee his occasion for his second invasion of the North, the riskiest of all, which will lead him up through northern Virginia, across into Maryland, and eventually all the way into Pennsylvania and will lead to the fateful battle at Gettysburg, first three days of July 1863, arguably the most important military turning point of the war. But it is in those same first six and seven months of 1863 that this war has now been transformed into a war of unconditional surrender, a war of all-out attempt, at least, all-out mobilization at home and conquest in the South. It is during this period that black soldiers are being recruited. The 54th Massachusetts, the famous regiment from Massachusetts by which the movie Glory was made, was recruited that winter and spring, of course, and marched off to South Carolina to its fate um, in May of 1863. They will reach their fate at Fort Wagner the, within a, a week of the Battle of Gettysburg back up north. But just as a way to take this out today, go back with me to July 1st, uh, excuse me, January 1st. 1863, the day the Emancipation Proclamation actually went into place, I said at the outset that for most black folk, they didn't really care about what actually the details or the words of the document were. The point was that now somehow the United States government was sanctioning emancipation. And go back with me to Thomas Wentworth Higginson. This is Higginson's description of Emancipation Day on Hilton Head Island in South Carolina, near Beaufort, North Car- uh, Beaufort, South Carolina. He was given orders to read the Emancipation Proclamation to the people, to the, to the freedmen. And this, by the way, became a policy throughout the Union Army. Thousands of copies of the Emancipation Proclamation were given to Union officers who were ordered to spread it around the South. Higginson not only spread it, he held a, a ceremony. They built a little stage. And this is his description of what happened. He's describing the scene. All this was according to the program, writes Higginson, then followed an incident so simple and so touching, so utterly unexpected and startling, that I can scarcely believe it on recalling it, though it gave the keynote to the whole day the very moment the speaker had ceased, and just as I took and waved the flag, which now for the first time meant anything to these poor people, there suddenly arose close beside the platform a strong male voice, but a little cracked and elderly, into which two women's voices instantly blended, singing as if by an impulse that could no more be repressed than the morning note of a song sparrow, My country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. People looked at each other and then at us on the platform to see whence came this interruption not put down in the program. Firmly and irrepressibly the quavering voices sang on, verse after verse, My country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, Others of the colored people joined in. Some whites on the platform began, but I motioned to them to be silent. I never saw anything so electric. It made all words cheap. It seemed the choked voice of a race at last unloosed. Nothing could be more wonderfully unconscious. Art could not have dreamed of a tribute to the day of Jubilee that should be so affecting. History will not believe it. And when I came to speak of it, after it was ended, tears were everywhere. If you could have heard how quaint and innocent it all was. Just think of it. The first day they'd ever had a country. The first flag they'd ever seen which promised anything to their people. And here, while mere spectators stood in silence, waiting for my stupid words, these simple souls burst out in their lay as if they were by their own hearths at home. When they stopped, there was nothing to do but to try to speak. And I went on. But the life of that whole day was in those unknown people's simple song. Have a good spring break.
1: Welcome back. And uh, that was a lecture by uh, Professor David Blight of uh, Yale University <clears throat> on the uh, historical significance uh, of the Emancipation Proclamation. 160 years ago today. we'll take a break. Uh, this is the Pan-African Journal. Worldwide uh, radio broadcast We'll be back with our concluding segment.
2: (ic
6: I William And I
2: we will Thank you.
1: Welcome back. Uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast. This uh, New Year's Day uh, 2023, uh, special edition of the Pan-African Journal, that was the band uh, Burning Spear uh, with the track entitled, It Is Good When a Man Can Think for Himself. And uh, today represents the 64th anniversary of the Cuban Revolution which triumphed on uh, January the 1st of 1959. And uh, we're going to listen to a rare archival interview uh, with uh, Ernesto Che Guevara, one of the leaders of the Cuban Revolution, although originally from uh, the South American state of Argentina. Uh, Che Guevara is being interviewed by uh, former ABC host uh, Lisa Howard. Uh, This interview was done in March of 1964 in Cuba.
0: He is 36 years old. He has been called the brains of the revolution and the power behind Fidel Castro, though he denies both assertions. We traveled to Cuba and filmed an interview with Major Guevara in his office at the Ministry of Industries. Theodore Draper, an acknowledged authority on the Cuban Revolution, once said, the words of Che Guevara should always be taken seriously. In this, Major Guevara's first appearance in the United States, we attempt to provide some answers to the enigma of this Latin leader. What manner of man is Che Guevara? Is he to the left or to the right of Fidel Castro? In what direction is he guiding the Cuban economy?
3: Recorded in Havana, Cuba, the American Broadcasting Company brings you an exclusive interview with Major Ernesto Che Guevara, Cuba's Minister of Industry and Fidel Castro's top aide. Major Guevara, in his first appearance in this country, is interviewed by ABC News correspondent Lisa Howard.
0: How seriously is the economic blockade affecting
6: the Cuban economy? I can't give you an exact figure of the effect of the blockade on Cuba. And believe it or not, but the blockade has good and bad effects. Among the good ones is the development of the national awareness and the fighting spirit of the Cuban people to overcome difficulties. Yet, if you consider that all of our Cuban machinery was made in the United States,
7: and that
6: your second hand machinery was dumped on us as well and at a profit and many of these lines of supply have been discontinued now then you can realize what this blockade has put us up against and the effort required to counteract it Figures can't be given. I don't know them. But obviously it has been a serious drawback. But at the same time, it has been a helpful lesson to us. It has taught us how to manage our economy in the future. I think this more or less answers your question.
0: Russia is pouring a great deal of money into the Cuban economy each day. Now, what would happen to the economy of the island if that
7: aid suddenly stopped? These statements of daily amounts
6: are, I think, typical of the American way of thinking and the concept that you have of investment. It may, in fact, reflect somehow the idea of what Americans understand as aid. American aid to uh, the countries of South America finally reverts against the state receiving their systems. In our case, there has been what could be called aid, such as the writing off of certain trade debts, long-term loans, but granted on a purely commercial basis. As for the rest, it is the normal natural trade between two countries. The United States is no longer the main import-export customer of Cuba, it is the Soviet Union. Now, if with your question, you're asking what would happen should Soviet aid stop, you refer to all our exchange, then I can answer that the life of the country would be paralyzed. Because, for example, oil. All of our oil, almost four million tons, comes from the Soviet Union, but that is not assistance, that's trade exchange on a basis of absolute equality And we pay for it with sugar and other products. Would you assess for us how effective has the United States blockade been?
7: I think
6: that you're almost inviting me to leak confidential information to you. We have recognized the importance of the blockade. But we've also stated with the same calm that the blockade was not going to prevent us from advancing. But first of all, it's difficult to be specific about it. And then it's not very appropriate either. After all, in spite of your good intentions, we're still enemies. And the enemy should really only know generalities about the other party.
0: Cuba has recently purchased buses from London, you're negotiating for a ship from Spain. I understand there's an economic mission in Switzerland. Does this represent for you a fundamental change in
6: the Cuban economy? I do not think so. I think there's been a change in the economic policy of some countries. There's been a certain breaking up of the so-called monolithic unity of the free world. There is more trade with Cuba now. Our commercial eagerness has always been on the same basis. In other words, merchandise is merchandise. And it should be to the mutual benefit of both the buyer and the seller. And on that basis, we've traded with the whole world, including the United States, even after we severed our relations.
7: The United States had
6: used great pressure to stop certain goods being sold to us. And you know full well the debate that was held and the discussions that took place because Leyland sold us buses. But actually, it is not we who changed. Certain aspects of international politics have changed. I don't know whether we have anything to do with that. I don't think so. I don't think we're that important.
0: Does he feel that these purchases represent a failure of the United States' blockade? See. Si. Yes. a serious
7: failure in case of
6: sorry eso depende de, de how it affects de. the american ego that of the united states
0: major Guvara, do you believe that this trade with the west that you are now engaged in will continue and perhaps expand in the near future
7: tengo esperanza de que si sí. I hope so.
6: Naturally, it doesn't only depend on our wishes, but also on the wishes of the people with whom we trade today. But I do have hopes that it will continue, and that we'll enter a new era as far as relations with Cuba are concerned. But the countries of Europe have realized the importance of having relations with all countries of the world, and that Cuba is a good market, a market that's reliable, stable, in one word a permanent market so that everything leads us to hope that these relations will go on and that they will expand in the future we are extremely interested
7: in this we have for
6: instance closed deals for the purchase of complete plants with several countries with France with England with Japan
7: we feel that
6: In the future, we can continue this type of transaction and with greater security.
7: Because in the
6: past, there
7: was always the fear. If
6: trade relations were interrupted, how were we to obtain spare power? But especially England and France have maintained very good relations with us in this respect. They have guaranteed the supply of spare parts for the equipment we bought from them during the revolutionary stages. This has also strengthened our confidence in the possibility of importing new machines. And then, with first-class technical equipment of the latest models to build up the whole series of industries which we are now developing. What would happen to the Cuban economy
0: if this trade with the West were suddenly cut off? Nothing. Major Guevara, much external evidence indicates that the Marxist system of economics simply doesn't work, doesn't provide a balance for life for its people. After 47 years of trial, the Soviet Union still cannot feed and house and clothe their people properly. Do you think it's possible that the Marxist system just doesn't provide the proper incentive to create a really high level of productivity?
7: You have a tendency to
6: make declarations in the form of questions. And again, I have first to refute your declaration and then answer the question. You say that it's been proved that Marxism or the Marxist system does not provide the people with what they need and ensure their well-being. I think it's just the opposite. If we compare the United States standard of living with that of other countries, then we must recognize that the other countries are lower. But when you speak of the American way of life and that of the free world, you've got to consider the 200 million people in Latin America who die of hunger, who die of diseases, who do not even reach adulthood, who die as children, starving. All these people contribute to the economic greatness of the United States that exploits them in one way or another. The same happens in Africa and it happened in Asia as well. Marxism ends all that. At the moment when we are being besieged by American imperialism,
7: we cannot offer our
6: people all the things we would like, but we've given them all we could,
7: all we've been able of doing so far
6: and on equal footing from ministers to the lowest official of the government. That is the main reason why the people continue to fight for their liberation.
0: But the United States government is quite aware of the problems in Latin America and through the Alianza is trying very hard to lift the standard of living of the people throughout the hemisphere. Now if the ruling classes agree to make land reforms and tax reforms and if the living standards are raised, won't the message of the Cuban revolution lose its
7: effectiveness? Of course,
6: it would lose it right away. The message of the Cuban revolution has that meaning because through its own weight Imperialism can only carry out lukewarm reforms which do not go to the very root of the problem.
7: If all of Latin America were freed from
6: imperialist domination, then imperialism itself would face very serious problems. The foundation of imperialism is the domination of Latin American countries through unequal exchange,
7: through the exchange of manufactured goods
6: for raw materials, the taking over
7: of key posts
6: in the government through the national oligarchy that are subservient to imperialism. Now, if all this were to be changed, imperialism would have lost its strength.
7: It, then, would
6: face the general crisis of capitalism. In other words,
3: the crisis
7: from the
6: working class within its own country. Although this is not so imminent in your country, because the exploitation of the working classes is transferred to Latin America, Africa, and Asia. But then the conflict would be directly within the United States.
7: So
6: obviously, the message of the Cuban Revolution would lose all of its
7: importance but it
6: wouldn't be needed either because that is precisely what we desire for all our people in Latin America
7: and once that was achieved there would be no further
6: need to launch messages that would have no meaning so
0: in our desire for these reforms we
7: agree true reforms for the access of the people to power then we agree.
0: Major Guevara, feel this ca- can come about through an evolutionary process, or must it come about through violent
7: revolutionary upheaval? So That of course depends
6: on the reactionary classes.
7: But it is they who
6: refuse to give up power, to hand over the reins of power. Where the reactionary classes insist on holding on to power, outside of the will of all. The spark will break out, and it may well set the whole of Latin America
7: on fire,
6: and the people will come to power. Major Guevara, since the success
0: of the revolution, the Cuban economy, according to all reports, has seriously deteriorated in every sector. Industrial outputs, the vegetable crop, the sugar harvest last year, which hit a low of 3.5 million tons. How do you account for this?
6: ...economic
7: regression.
6: Well, again, that question is a statement. So, the first thing that must be done is to refute the statement and then answer the question. You say that all aspects of the Cuban economy have deteriorated during the course of the revolution. And I say you're wrong. The industrial output... ...increased since 1959, and it could have increased much more had it not been adversely affected by the sugar industry, which has, in fact, decreased.
7: The industrial
6: output has increased at an annual rate of 7%, of course, not counting sugar.
7: And the increase for
6: 1963 and the estimates for 1964 show an even higher rate... For 1963, it
7: amounted
6: to 10%, and the estimates for 1964 will even be higher, and the sugar output will also increase.
0: Major Guevara, when you were fighting in the hills of the Sierra Maestra, did you foresee that the revolution would take so radical a turn?
7: Intuitively, I felt it. Of course. The course
6: and the very violent development of the revolution couldn't be foreseen, nor was the Marxist-Leninist formulation of the revolution foreseeable. That was the result of a very long process, and you know it very well. We had a more or less vague idea of solving the problems which we clearly saw affected the peasants who fought with us, and the problems that we saw in the lives of the workers. But it would be very long to recount the whole process of the transformation of our ideas. There is a conviction
0: in the United States that Major Guevara was one of the most radical influences in the revolution. And that he pulled Dr. Castro to the left. That what happened here was partially his blueprint. Does he accept or deny that?
7: for a long time in the United
6: States and in many other countries I have been given the honor of being considered the brain of the revolution the cold mastermind the leftist the power behind the throne
7: well, personally speaking I wouldn't
6: be bothered about this but my honesty as a revolutionary my innate modesty and honesty forced me to confess
7: that the top
6: leftist in Cuba is Fidel Castro and that the greatest danger of the United States in Cuba is the danger of Fidel and not me. In the hills of the Sierra...
1: Welcome back. And that was a uh, rare archival uh, interview with Ernesto Che Guevara, one of the leaders of the Cuban Revolution, uh, with uh, Lisa Howard, the uh, former... ABC uh, reporter, uh, in fact, the first uh, U.S. reporter after the revolution uh, to travel uh, to Cuba for a major television network. And, of course, uh, Lisa Howard um, served as a back source uh, for communication between uh, the administration of President John Kennedy and uh, the Cuban government under Fidel Castro and Che Guevara uh, during uh, the early years of the revolution. And uh, we'd like to, uh, of course, uh, thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning in today, uh, this New Year's Day program uh, for 2023. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. The programs can be shared with other potential listeners by merely copying and pasting the links into emails and sending those emails out to other potential listeners, copying and pasting the links onto other blogs and websites, as well as sharing the links on social media networks such as Facebook and Twitter. We're going to close out this program uh, with the legendary uh, concert uh, at the Fillmore East. On December 31st and January 1st of 1969, this is the Band of Gypsies, uh, of course, with Jimi Hendrix on guitar, Billy Cox on bass, and Buddy Miles on drums. Let's listen to the Band of Gypsies. This is Abayome Azikoway signing off, and have a beautiful week.
3: To uh, such a draggy scene that's going on. All the soldiers that are fighting in Chicago and Milwaukee and New
4: York. Oh, yes, and all the soldiers fighting in Vietnam. But they do a thing called machine gun.